suffering from depression, anxiety, addiction, and other emotional challenges. Now, for some reason, they left the details off of the description and the title in your program. I'm not quite sure why. It just says healing from emotional challenges, but that's what we're talking about. Healing from addiction, anxiety, and so on. Um, and what I find in my practice is that the same kind of techniques and principles that are helpful in dealing with the one can also be applied to the other, which is nice because a lot of times these conditions can be what we in the profession call comorbid. That's kind of a weird word, right? Basically means you're struggling with more than one thing at the same time. So if you're already depressed, it's more likely you'll get anxious. And if you're already anxious, it's more likely that, that you'll develop an addiction. Because you already have an addiction, you already you know, and so on and so on. So the good news is what works, works. You know, it doesn't work, doesn't work. What makes you worse makes everything worse, and what makes you healthy makes everything healthy. You know, that's true in so many ways in our physical bodies, you know, exercising and eating right and doing yoga and yoga is good for us. It's not just good for one condition, it's good for lots of conditions. Well, the things we're going to be talking about today and through this week are similar, but as it relates to our emotional health. And today we're going to be talking about that crucial element in our emotional health and our mental health that is simply what is happening in our, in our heads, what is happening in our brains. Now what's happening for so many of us in our brains is what I like to call the negative chatterbox. We all have one. And it's apparently a pretty popular topic in education this year. I've been teaching this, like I say, for about 23 years, but so far I've been to two whole four-hour classes the whole week of um, two different female therapists whose entire class is um, dealing with the inner critic. You know, eight hours here in education besides my hour. You know, so apparently this is an issue that a lot of us are struggling with, you know. Um, the negative chatterbox, as I would like to refer to it, pretty much the same idea as the inner critic. It's this little voice in the back of your head you know, which is constantly saying mean things to you about you, right? Or constantly saying mean things, you know, negative, destructive things about the world, or about your spouse, or about your kids, or about, you know, whatever else, okay? Whether, you're, whether you or a loved one is struggling with depression, anxiety, you know, addiction, anger, or just plain old, you know, worry, or stress, or kind of everything, everyday things, thinking, has everything to do with that. And the great news about this is thinking is one of the things that you can learn to control more than almost anything else in your life. There's almost nothing in this world we control 100%, right? But thinking, what is happening in our heads is one of the things we can learn to tune into and then learn to improve upon, okay? so. Um, Recognizing and replacing thoughts that otherwise keep us stuck and hopeless. Now, I became aware of how important this is in recovery, emotional recovery, a number of years ago, when I was a brand new little baby therapist, fresh out of graduate school, and started working initially at LDS Family Services. And there I was given a whole different range of clients. One day, you know, one hour I was saying, I'm depressed, then a marriage counseling thing, then anxiety, then know, abuse and rape and whatever, so it was a kind of whirlwind of getting exposed to a lot of things at once. Well, it was one of the first times I'd gotten exposed to, you know, as a counselor, to people who had sexually abused as children. I got two girls about the same age that both had that terrible experience. It was interesting, though, because though even though they had had that same experience, they weren't responding the same way. Hmm. 
girl number one um, was completely depressed, cutting on herself, um, engaging in destructive relationships with boys, basically who had sexually taken advantage of her after her sexual abuse experience, getting into alcohol, drugs, not going to school, screaming at her parents, finally she had to move, be moved out of her parents' house, it was so destructive. That's girl number one, sexual abuse victim number one. Sexual abuse victim number two in my practice at that time, a young girl about the same age, both about 15, 16 years old, and this girl had sexual abuse happen to her, but she was still going to church, she was still going to school, she had sweet, cordial relationships with her family. She didn't engage in drugs or alcohol. She played you know, games with her little brother at night for fun. She was just this kind, sweet girl. And as I looked at both of those girls, I'm like, what gives? These girls have had basically the same experience, so why is the response so very, very different? And not only that, but out of those two behavioral responses, which would you guess had a worse, more serious abuse experience, girl number one or girl number two? Number two. You would guess number number two. But that's not the case, you know. Um, girl number one had a pretty, you know, they had worse behavior. Girl number one basically was all of sexual abuse is destructive, but she she just had someone kind of fond her a little bit over close, okay. Still terrible, still destructive, but girl number two had full-on, you know, invasive rape. But girl number two was doing way better. It didn't make any sense. Until finally, a little new baby therapist was asking the girls a little bit about, you know, in their different sessions about their experiences. And, um, and I, I learned that when girl number one, the one that had all the behavioral problems, told her mother, about her abuse, the mother said, and I quote, you little slut, how could you let him do that to you? Mm. Well, that girl learned from her abuse that she's a little slut, that it's her fault, that she's ruined, that she's broken, that guys will only like her if she lets them do such and such. So what's her behavior? Falls in line with that. Girl number two, who had the worst experience, full-on, invasive, destructive, scary rape. She went to her mom and she said, she said, this is what's happened to me. And mom said, oh honey, I am so sorry that's happened to you. But I am here for you. This is not your fault. There's nothing wrong with you. I'm here for you. Your bishop's here for you. Your heavenly father is here for you. And we are going to help you get through this. What did that girl learn about that experience? that she is still a loved, cherished daughter of God, a daughter of this family, that her essential worth has not been changed one bit, even though this terrible thing had happened to her. That thinking that was launched by those mothers' remarks, on the one side and on the other, literally resulted in a completely different pattern of response in these two girls, even though they had almost identical experiences. They both were sexually abused. We can also think of another set of contrasts. We have four brothers walking at the beginning of the Book of Mormon through the same exact words, seeing the same angels, hearing Dad describe the same vision of the tree of life, walking down the same dirt roads, facing the same hunger, going back to Jerusalem facing the same murderous Laban. But two of those brothers become 
filthy, vicious, cruel murderers. One of the brothers becomes a prophet who even thousands of years later, his influence and his words continue to bless thousands all over the world. And the other brother doesn't become a prophet, but is a close supporter and follower of that prophet brother and is honored and faithful in his own respect. So why the difference? They're going through the same exact wilderness, having the same exact experience. So what's the difference? The difference. So it's going on in our heads. The difference with the Book of Mormon, we see uh, materialize even as early as uh, 1 Nephi chapter 2. 1 Nephi chapter 1 gives us the backstory that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed and Lehi goes out and preaches and then he's marginalized and they try to, you know, the Jews try to kill him and so on. Chapter 2, we get a glimpse of what's going on with the family. And you remember what happens, you know, the two older brothers who, you know, granted have the most to lose as the, you know, the, the, the oldest brothers. They had the most to lose by leaving Jerusalem and everything. And they're like, this is a hard thing, and the people in Jerusalem are good. What's your problem? All this kind of stuff. And Nephi, you know, decides, thinks, I'm going to see what God has to say about this. He goes and asks God, so is what your dad told my dad, right? Is that even from you? And he's his own witness. And from that point of departure, you see a completely divergent path, even though they're going through the exact same physical experience. So thinking is really, really powerful. The, the, um, the wise uh, King Solomon said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Right? And so we're going to be talking today about the way that thinking affects our experiences, including our difficult experiences, and how we can intentionally learn to craft and decide on a thinking path that works for us and for our mental health rather than bringing us down into anger and depression and anxiety and so on. So first, um, I'm going to talk about uh, this model that I put together, um, just to kind of piece everything together. We're going to be talking about different elements of the model throughout this week. And just as a brief review, um, yesterday we talked about the first element of the model. Whenever people struggle with these conditions, depression, anxiety, and so on, almost without exception, the trouble began in some kind of context of the relationship, some sort of trigger experience, okay? Um, they experienced some kind of grief. Somebody died, or somebody got divorced, or somebody's best friend moved away, or they graduated from high school, now they don't see their friends anymore, or whatever it might be. They're separated in some way from someone that they loved. That's a very powerful trigger for grief, anxiety, uh, depression, and so on. Another trigger can be transition. Things changing, even if they're normal things, like a graduation or a retirement or the birth of a first child or a last child leaving to go to college or on a mission or whatever it might be. Transition is when our lives change in major ways, anticipated or unanticipated. I've been surprised how many clients will come in on the face of these normal transitions, graduation, retirement, empty nesting, whatever. Um, I think so much of what we call postpartum depression is a transition-related depressive episode. Just suddenly my entire life, my entire identity, my body, my entire schedule, my sense of what I do in the day and night and everything else, completely changed, right? It's not all just hormones. It's about my life and my identity as I know myself completely just changed, right? So managing, learning to manage transition is so much a part of this. 
um, conflict, whenever we're in conflict with someone important to us, to us, whether that's our spouse or our kid or our boss or our bishop or, or even ourselves, if part of you wants to do this, the other says, oh, that's not a really great idea, conflict can be a powerful trigger. Lack of interpersonal skills, when we don't know how to communicate with others, how to set boundaries with others, how to start in on conversations, um, science has found that can be a real significant trigger for depression. I used to think that was a really pretty uncommon trigger that used to only be relevant to people who grew up in dysfunctional families. I now find it's almost universal. Here's why. Because now we do our relationships largely through these things. Okay? These things are not actual interpersonal skills. They distract us from those. And because we spend so much of our lives on these things, it, it keeps us from forming actual relationships, looking actual people into the eyes, hugging actual people, serving actual people, because we're busy looking at those virtual things so much of the time. So this, that trigger, I think, has become very, very common. Other triggers, like uh, abuse, like I can just mention that last story, or any kind of violence, powerful trigger for anxiety, depression, addiction, and so on. Illness or injury, um, again, suddenly life is transformed in some pretty miserable ways with those conditions, so that can be a trigger. Loss. Grief is about losing someone that's important to you. Loss can be anything else. Loss of an opportunity, loss of a job, loss of the familiarity of your neighborhood if you move, um, whatever. That, so that can be a trigger. And finally, just plain old disappointment. I thought life was going to be like this, instead it's turned out like that. I thought my marriage would be like this, and suddenly kind of went south. I thought that by the time I was such and such an age, I'd be married with five kids, and instead, I'm still single, or whatever it might be, okay? So these are conditions that I found universally happen before a person develops depression, anxiety, addiction, and so on. And typically, the more emotionally distressed a person is, the more of these triggers have happened, right? Um, and so it's, that's the first part of the model. And I find with people that I see in counseling, if we go through this list, we identify their triggers. <coughs> a lot of times we'll find something that's happened kind of recently, but a lot of times we'll also find there's triggers in the past, abuse in the past, or grief in the past, or some kind of transition experience that was significant that didn't go well, or whatever, that the little thing that just happened recently doesn't seem that big of a deal, but it triggers the impact of those older triggers, okay? So there can be cumulative impact from these triggers, and that tends to be the first step for people in developing these kinds of problems, right? Now that's very different than the version of depression or anxiety you'll see on TV where the person just kind of wanders along, and all of a sudden this little cloud comes and starts to realize, oh, now I have a chemical balance, now I need this product for the rest of my life, okay? Very different concept. I have never in 30 plus years of being a counselor seen that version of depression and anxiety. I see this every time I go to work. Every time. And you know what else I see every time? Is that when people are struggling with those problems, whether it's the fully you know, uh, incapacitated level of those problems, or it's just kind of like every day I'm still walking, but I still feel so great person. When people feel validated and understood for what kicked this off in the first place, for how they were hurt, that's the first step in their healing process, to have, to have someone validate, that was really hard, no wonder you're struggling. And over time they learn to validate themselves, say, oh yeah, but that was hard, and this and this and this and this, all that, no wonder I'm struggling, you know? 
But they don't stay there. That's the first of these, the whole process of this healing. Okay? Now sometimes, as we talked about in my class yesterday, you know, you'll find counselors who only identify and validate this as, oh, okay, I call it poor dear therapy, okay? Poor dear that that happened to you. Poor dear that you were raised in a dysfunctional family. Poor dear that so-and-so was mean to you. And oh, it's so sad that because of, of that, you've been, you know, you've, you've developed this chemical imbalance and you'll be disabled for the rest of your life. But I understand because so much has happened to you, poor dear. Not helpful, okay? One of the most important things you can understand as, as it relates to emotional wellness and healing is, if you feel broken today, it doesn't mean you have to be broken forever. If you're depressed today, if you're angry today, if you're addicted, anxious, whatever it is today, it doesn't have to be a permanent <coughs> condition. How it gets permanent for some people is they're told that it's permanent, and then they act as if it's permanent. They engage in the actions and beliefs I think one of the most devastating things you can do to a person who's already struggling with one of these things is say, well, I'm sorry, based on the symptoms, it appears that you have a chemical imbalance in your brain and uh, you're always going to be struggling with this. What could you do to somebody to create more depression, more anxiety, more hopelessness than tell their brain is broken? Here's the thing, we can be hurt, but we are built to heal. We are built to learn. There's this amazing thing in our brains that's just been discovered in recent years called neuroplasticity. Big multisyllabic word basically means your brain changes. Your brain learns. Your brain continues to develop new cells. Now one of the things I learned a number of years ago in my early 40s, I started to feel the ravages of age. Okay, my back started to hurt. My weight started to pile on. I started to struggle emotionally. And I said to myself, as many of us will do, well, I guess that's just what happens when you make it over. So, just kind of have to deal with that. Then, I read a book that changed my life. It was called, what was it called? I wasn't planning to talk about this. Well, see, Younger Next Year. Younger Next Year. Have you read it? It's an amazing book. It's this book by this guy, a doctor, a medical doctor. He was an internist. And so he talked about how being an internist basically means you see the same patients year after year after year, whereas if you're the heart surgeon or if you're the anesthesiologist, you see somebody long enough to poke them or cut into the water and you never see them again, right? But an internist, he said, you see people over the course of years. And he saw something kind of scary over the course of years. Most of his clients were falling apart, most of his patients. Every, every time he saw them, they had a new diagnosis, a new illness, whether emotional or physical or both. He's like, well, I guess that's just true. But then he, he started to see a client, a patient, in his 80s. This man was vibrant, funny, dynamic, still kind of a surf chaser, you know what I mean? You know, scoring pretty much every weekend, which isn't necessarily a gospel activity, but he was speaking to us. So he was doing extreme skiing, he was, he was skateboarding, he was biking, and he, this man was in such contrast to all the other patients and this doctor. The doctor finally said to this exemplary patient, he says, what are you doing? Why, why are you in your mid-80s? Are you so much more healthy than all these other? He says, oh, that's easy, doctor. Let me all this stuff. And I started to identify. And this doctor started to do some research, and he found what, in my early 40s, 
was this absolutely transformative idea of the new science of aging. And I'm telling you this because it relates to our bodies, it also relates to our brains. The new science of aging is simply this. We, throughout our lives, continue to build new cells. Bone cells, skin cells, hair cells, brain cells. And whether that new batch of cells is healthier or sicker than the previous version depends entirely on what we're feeding the mechanism. If we're feeding our bodies, and it's our brains, which are physical, junk, then the cells that the body has to work with, or the cells it's going to create with from those raw materials are going to be, guess what? Junk. You are what you eat. You are what you drink. And so the older the person is, if they've been eating and drinking, guess what? Junk for decades of their lives, and now they get to their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, guess what? The cells are going to be creating from that junk are not going to be so great. Whereas, they found that within just a few weeks' time, that process can be reversed. Dr. Joel Furman and John McDougall and so many others have shown you don't just, you can't just prevent things like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and stuff through going to a really super healthy natural diet, basically the whole word of wisdom, eating stuff that grows out the ground, right? You know? Um, but you can actually reverse those conditions. Time and time again, they've shown that, right? And so this new science of aging is basically the new body that you're going to have six months from now is going to be completely different than the one you're living in right now. Everything from your skin cells, your hair cells, even your bones. Your bones take the longest. They take about six months. Skin, you can develop new skin cells pretty much every day. And brain cells are some of the fastest to regenerate. But they regenerate based on what they are fed. And what they are fed is partly about food and drink and that kind of stuff. And it's partly about what they are fed mentally. What they are fed spiritually. So if you're constantly putting in front of your face depressing shows, depressing commercials, and depressing songs or whatever, guess what? That's part of your mental diet. It affects your body's health, your heart's health, and yes, your brain health. Whereas, when you intentionally feed your brain, not just good food and healthy, you know, we'll talk more about that tomorrow, the physical part of that, but also a mental diet of things that raise you up, things that lift you, you literally will have a different body and brain six months from now than what you're sitting in now. However, if you continue to eat garbage, if you continue to watch depressing crap, if you continue to listen to you know, depressing or angry or destructive music, guess what? You're going to continue to deteriorate. You know, it's the law of the harvest. And when you understand it, it is so empowering and transformative. So again, if you feel broken today, you do not have to be broken forever. If you are depressed, anxious, addicted, angry, falling apart today, that does not need to be your eternal fate. And I read that book younger next year in my early 40s. I will tell you that in November, I'll be celebrating my 60th birthday. And my agent is still sending me for parts of people in my mid-40s. <laughs> I basically haven't aged because I learned this principle, right? It's been fantastic. And as I see clients in, uh, uh, implement these principles, both physically and mentally and emotionally, it is absolutely phenomenal. Now here's the thing though, teaching people how to be well, physically, emotionally, 
is very bad for business. <laughs> they want to fail. Yeah, I mean, if I can convince somebody that they need my product for the rest of their life, I'm set. You know, if I can convince somebody that you know they're just falling apart, there's really nothing more they can do with it. You know, I was so mad in our most recent health crisis a couple of years ago. Because the only thing you can do is to wear your mask and get the vaccination yeah. and social distance. Can I say bull? <laughs> so, I can't. It's just not true. Because these same doctors I mentioned before, Joel Berman and John McDonough, they're doing studies that not only do people lessen their chance or reduce or eliminate their chance of diabetes, cancer, and you know, so on and so on and so on, by taking on a fully natural, healthy diet. Guess what? They're also less immune to guess what? COVID. Did you see that on the news? Nope. No way. And so when President Elder Cook was talking a couple days ago about the, the healing power, the very first problem, Hubert Jacob and I talked about the word of wisdom, and he mentioned, you know, alcohol and cigarettes and how the benefits of that. That's great and it's true. Guess what? So is the rest of the word of wisdom. All of it. If we really want to be healthy and strong and run and not be weary, I outrun my grandchild. And he's a fast runner. Fast runner. <laughs> You know, good always. I'm, I'm way healthier now at almost 60 than I ever was in my 40s or 30s or 20s. You know, our bodies are built to heal, and so are our brains. And that is the first transformative idea I want you to get into your head. Okay? We can heal. We can turn things around. We can learn to do things different, to think things different in ways that build us up rather than tear us down. And that's true of depression, that's true of anxiety, that's true of addiction, that's true of all of them. So, triggers, going back to that. Um, that's not the one I was expecting. Am I in the right PowerPoint? Oh. This does not look right to me. Hold on, let me check. Let me check. Oh, that's why. Ha ha, okay. I added this section here. So there is another transformative idea that is not new, and that I didn't learn from younger next year or anything written in the last 20 years. This is an idea that has been with us since Adam. This one I'm going to share with you with music because there's some ideas that go in best just through the head, through the ears, and there's some ideas that go in best through the, through the heart and through the, the spirit. So I'm going to share this idea with you in the next three minutes. Um, in this little song, sharing this idea. If this works. <laughs> Is your life ever shadowed by despair? Can you find no comfort anywhere?
triggers I mentioned, grief and loss and disappointment, death, sorrow, sickness, are part of our mortal experience. When, not if that happens, the message is, bring it unto him. Now, that's not also not what we're going to see um, on television or in those cute little pamphlets in your doctor's office. If you're anxious, if you fear, if you're hurt, if you're angry, if you're struggling, if you're addicted, we have a product for that. We got something to make your pain go away. We got a, we got a process. We have forgotten in the midst of so many resources and so many experts, in so many instances, we have forgotten to turn to him who is the ultimate healer, physician. Now certainly it's my experience that that ultimate healer physician will guide us in making wise use of the various resources we have available to us, thank goodness. We are here to learn by study and also by faith. But in so many instances, brothers and sisters, we forget to turn to him who is the source of our comfort, our healing. Him who literally created these brains and these bodies that we live in, who can literally teach us what we personally need to do. Have you ever had an experience where you're struggling with yourself or a loved one or whatever, and you go Google answers? And pretty much every expert or every book you read has a completely different set of things to do, and you get so overwhelmed, oh, where do I even start? Especially because this expert will say something completely the opposite of that expert. You don't know where to begin? Where you begin, bring it up to him. Say, Lord, so I'm trying to figure out how to solve such and such a problem, so can you guide me through this? And sometimes he'll have you read such and such self-help book, or he'll have you use such and such resource for a period of time, right? The point is, he is the center of the healing process, not something or someone else, okay? So, we go back to here now. Oops, ah! I didn't mean to do that, hello. This is the first time I've done this on the same computer, it's a little tricky. So. Responding to our challenges. Um, we went over this a little bit yesterday. It's so normal as human beings when we deal with these trigger experiences to engage in any of the following, what I call the ADASA response. Anxiety, depression, anger, stress, or addiction. That is totally normal for us as human beings. When we're stressed, when we're disappointed, when we're in grief, when we're, that, we, that we end up moving in one of those directions. It's not our only option. And we all know people who've been through terrible trigger experiences, but who didn't end up depressed, anxious, addicted, and so on. So what's the difference? What was the difference for Nephi versus Laman? What was the difference for that girl number one versus girl number two? What is the ingredient that can turn a trigger experience into an Adassa experience rather than a sanctifying one? I've had that list of triggers for probably 20 years. What I finally realized is those same trigger experiences can and do trigger depression, anxiety, and so on. You know what else they can trigger? They can trigger sanctification. They can trigger the development of new Christ-like qualities, new strengths, new confidence. Our trigger experiences can literally push us to that next level of our development if we're looking to a place that builds us up rather than that takes us down. So we add the second element of the diamond after our relationship triggers, which is Thoughts. Thoughts can provide a saving resource within to help us weather adversity storms. Which is why the prophets, and especially the Savior, have tried in advance 
to arm those with a fair hearing with healing ideas. Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not, endure it well. Thy bursting and thine affliction shall be but a small moment, and so on, okay? Thoughts, beliefs can literally be the refuge that gets us through whatever it is we're called upon to face. Or thoughts can create additional layers of needless, distracting, unproductive pain. It was terrible when girl number one got molested. It was even more terrible at whole new layers of pain when she was talking to a little slut. This is your fault. How could you let him do this to you? Nobody's ever going to want you. Nobody's ever going to love you. And then those terrible words she repeated in her own head with that negative chatterbox for years afterward it affected her behavior, affected everything. Happily, we can learn to trade those kind of destructive thoughts in. Particularly as we follow the counsel, look into him in every thought, to doubt not, fear not, to compare what's going on with our heads, you know, that's taking us down with what we learn from him. Now, one of my favorite <clears throat> tools to use in counseling is something called cognitive therapy. Some of you have heard of it. It's often paired with behavioral therapy to create CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. We'll talk more about the behavioral part tomorrow. But for today, let's start with this. The originator of cognitive therapy, Aaron Beck, was a psychiatrist back in the 1960s, about the period of time when the old Freudian ways of, you know, trying to promote healing through looking at what happened the first few years of your life, and then that was notoriously expensive and ineffective. They're looking for new answers, right? And um, <clears throat> so Dr. Beck was trained as a Freudian psychoanalyst, but he found something quite terrible once he got into practice, which is particularly his depressed patients when he did what he was taught. Well, what else happened? What else happened? And how do you feel about that? It didn't make his clients better. It made them worse. Now, he had sworn Hippocratic oath, first do no harm. He felt like he was doing harm. He was doing additional harm by having people just focus on everything that was terrible about their lives. So he didn't know what to do. So, as a good, you know, scientist, a good researcher, he did what he had been trained to do. He gathered data. He started to listen carefully to his depressed patients, particularly the really depressed patients, and he found something really interesting, which was a pattern that was repeated in pretty much every single depressed patient he had. And then he checked it out with other colleagues at the University of Massachusetts where he was working, they found the same pattern, which is if people are struggling with depression or these other kind of emotional challenges, invariably they have a cognitive pattern of negative thoughts about one or more of the following things. Number one, most commonly, themselves. Okay, I'm so stupid, I'm worthless, I'm ugly, nobody's gonna want me, I'm worth you know, I'm five, I'm a failure, whatever. Number two, the world or people in the world, the negative thoughts about that. And they might also have negative thoughts about the future. They found it is when people have negative thoughts about the future that what starts as a mild depression can turn, turn toxic into a suicidal depression, because like, oh yeah, I'm broken today, I feel terrible today, and because I'm depressed, I have this chemical imbalance, I'm going to feel terrible forever, and always, and so nothing's ever gonna change, so I might as well get out of here now, you know? There was a book that became popular a couple of years ago on depression, um, I can't remember now what it was called, it was by a journalist who struggled with depression, Silent, Silent Souls Weeping, right? Um, and it broke my heart to read that book, because there are such better answers, there's so much more hope than was reflected in that book. She was a journalist. She was kind of gathering everybody's stories about how depressed and terrible it was. And 
But you know, some of the stories that she collected um, were just broke my heart because it was basically, as she talked to the survivors of several very depressed um, people that ended up in su uh, uh, death by suicide, it was the day they were told, I'm sorry, you have a chemical imbalance, you're always going to struggle, you're a brain dismissive. That was when they decided, I'm not here, I'm not sitting around for this. That idea can literally be toxic. And there's better ideas. There's more hopeful ideas than that. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is full of them. And fortunately, the profession I'm part of is full of them. But this was the first thing that Aaron Beck found, it is these negative thoughts. What could be more negative than, I am chemically imbalanced in my brain, I'm always going to be that. What could be more depressing? There's better, more healing, happier ideas available than that. So he started to develop this idea of cognitive therapy. As he noticed this impact, that if they had these negative thoughts, that they struggle with depression. So he started to think, you know, I wonder if I could help them replace those negative thoughts if, if that would change anything. So cognitive therapy has become a very well-researched, well-respected method over the last several decades, 30, 40 years at least, a treatment strategy applied in therapy and or a self-guided bibliotherapy. Many of you read a book and learn how to do it from that. That works too. Designed to help people recognize and eliminate negative thinking patterns that contribute to emotional distress. Now there's uh, these uh, researchers that developed this method to identify what they call 10 forms of, of twisted thinking. Okay, We don't have time to go over all 10. Um, one of the best resources for dealing with, or for, for learning about these is in um, a book by um, David D. Burns, The Feeling Good Handbook, where he goes deeply into all these. I'm just going to give you a sample of the four of these ten forms of twisted thinking that I've seen most commonly doing the most harm in my clients, and what I've found as antidotes consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn around those negative thoughts. So here's um, an, a, a quick overview, all or nothing thinking, um, blame, self-blame or blaming others, should statements, a mental filter. Um, turn inward toward the self that tends to produce uh, depression, self-hate, low self-worth. Turn outward toward others that tends to create anger and conflict. So I'll let you take a photo of that and I'll go into a little more detail on each of these. Okay, so here's the first one. It's the first one on Burns' list. It is also the first on my list because it is the most common, particularly in well-intentioned, good people who are trying to do right. It is called, well, and if you have both inward and outward, that a lot of times produces addiction. So the first is all or nothing thinking, which I like to call the light switch, okay? In all or nothing thinking, things are either good or bad, black or white, perfect or worthless, pretty or ugly, there's nothing in between. You know, and so if you're not completely perfect and completely, you know, the top of your game in some area, then you're worthless, or you're stupid, or you're whatever. You know, um, that's a really, really common distortion. Almost all of us engage in it, and it's it's almost impossible to avoid in the church when there's so many lists of things that we're supposed to do and be. If we think that being therefore perfect means all these things right this minute, which it doesn't, by the way. <laughs> Um, we're going to feel inadequate. We're going to feel like we'll never measure up, right? So instead of all or nothing, I call it the light switch because you know how light switch works. It's either on or off, good or bad, perfect or worthless, pretty or ugly. There's nothing in between. Instead of that, 
I found it useful for myself and with my clients to move to continuum thinking, or the dial. Where you, on this particular way of doing it, and on the zero side would be all bad, on the 10 side would be all good, five is just kind of in the middle. I'll give you an example of how I used that with a, a client. Had a mom come in, I knew from previous experience, this was a devoted, sweet little LDS mom who just lived for her kids and nurtured them in so many ways. So she came in one day just doing this to herself, you know, beating herself, oh, I'm so sensitive, I don't even know why I'm bothering me these tokens, I'm so terrible, and, you know, I'm a bad mother. So I knew from previous experience and from talking to others in her family, it just wasn't true. But she was doing that kind of all bad lights are off sort of thing. She said, so, so what is it that makes you think that you're a bad mom? Because you told me before how important your kids are to you and how much you devote them. Well, Johnny came home yesterday with his report card and did not have a sick mind. It's like, yeah, I'm just a terrible mom. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, some people would be delighted if a kid got a C minus <laughs> But for her, if it wasn't straight A's, all of her kids, every time, lights went off. She was bad, and it was her fault. So she was already doing two out of four stories before I So here's how we corrected it. Zero, all bad. So let's, let's say, you know, if you are really a, a, a bad, terrible mother, I want you to think of the worst, most terrible, destructive mother you can think of. What, what would they do? Describe it. Well, they treat poverty like a piece of kids and never give them food, and maybe she's eating guns at them, and cook up meth in the basement. Do you do any of those things? No. So are you a zero? No, guess not. So now to describe the ten, all of it. Well, they make how many, you know, whole wheat bread for this is before we were all gluten intolerant, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they actually wheat rather than the junk that they kind of, that's what we're going that's all our story. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a good mother would, you know, make home-cooked meals for her children and, and help them with their homework and teach them the gospel and have a good, a good garden going outside and make all their clothes that's also food and sewing and, and so on. And so she had a list a mile long. I said, who do you know that is doing all of those all the time? Nobody. So do you know any 10 moms? No. Probably the only one that's closed already was exhausted a long time ago. We don't have to talk about her. But, <laughs> so I said, so let, now let's talk about five in the middle, neutral, neither good nor bad. You know, somebody who doesn't really do any good stuff, and they don't do terrible things either. Are you a five? Well, no, I'd like to be a little better mom than that. So, so where would you rate yourself on this session? Well, she said, at the end of the day, probably somewhere between a, I don't know, 6.5 and 8.7. <laughs> That's really different than zero. <laughs> Even the 6.25 days. Even if she sometimes comes back to 5.1, it's not zero. And as simple as it is, whether we're judging ourselves or somebody else, you know, maybe I've had so many women, my husband is not a good priesthood leader. Why is he not a good priesthood? Because he doesn't lead out in scripture study. Okay. So I do the same thing. What would a terrible, horrible, absolutely awful priesthood leader has to be? You know, and again, they're they're raping, they're abusing the kids, they're you know, they're they're giving drugs to the children, they're robbing banks. That's a zero. Is he a zero? Oh, no. Is he a ten? Oh, definitely not. So what is he? I don't know. Maybe a five point seven. Well, five point seven is way better than zero. Get the guys credit. You know, whether it be ourselves or our kids or our husbands and our wives or whatever, we can put these things that we tend to do, good or bad, we can perfect or worse, you know, bad. On, this, on the all or nothing, we can put on the scale. It is amazingly simple, but amazingly effective. That's the first substitution. 
Here's the second one. Self-blame. It's all my fault. Like the last woman. So for that one, I found effective to move people to blame pie. Rather than the whole pie of blame is my fault, right? Who else is involved in what grade your child gets? Certainly, it's nice as a parent if you're able to sit down with them and help support them. But who else is involved in what that child learns? Well, obviously, there's a few other pieces that puzzle. They include, obviously, the child themselves and the child's teacher. And maybe and maybe the child's being picked on at school. They're getting distracted. With it. So you have to look at all of the pieces of the puzzle in order to fix the thing. But she was blaming herself for the whole thing, so she wasn't fixing anything. Not only does that bringing her down depression makes her significantly ineffective in helping her child. Because she's so busy beating herself up that she can't help him with the other pieces of what's going on. The thing that is beautiful about doing blame pie is that when you figure out what piece of the pie is yours, then you can focus on that. You can fix what is your part of the problem. Because if, if, if something's going wrong in your relationship, most likely you are part of the problem. But you're not the whole thing. So blame pie frees you to focus on those things you need to change and repent of. And let other people be in charge of the other parts. You don't need to control the whole entire thing. It is so freeing and so much more effective than either blame or self-blame. Here's the third substitution. Should statements. So-and-so should do such and such. Now, these are another, uh, this is another distortion we very frequently, especially as devoted letter the saints do against ourselves. I, I should be kinder. I shouldn't yell at my kids. I, I should... You know, I should volunteer more at the, fill in the blank, the cannery, whatever, you know. We have so many shoulds, things we should be doing. I, I had a, I attended a, um, a class one time years ago where the speaker put on a blackboard every single commandment. And here's what we discovered. You literally, in this mortal world, cannot simultaneously fulfill every commandment. You can't do it. At this very moment, for example, I am fulfilling the commandment to share my witness, to share my talents, to, um, you know, uh, testify of, of truth and so on. But you know what I'm not doing right now? I am not home to clean my house. I am not ministering to my neighbor. I am not saving the dead in the temple. This very moment, none of us can do every single commandment at all times perfectly. We can't do it. Right now, we are bound by time and space. We're taught that God, in his exalted state, is omniscient, omniloving, om and omnipresent. You know what omnipresent means? Able to be everywhere at once. Newsflash, we are not omniscient, omniloving, and especially not omnipresent right now. If I'm standing here, I can't be standing there. If I'm serving this person, I can't be serving that person. But Satan will sometimes use that against us. Oh, you're sure of this. Or we may do should say that's against other people. My husband should. My bishop should. God should. My kids should. Here's the substitution I found helpful for this one. Three-part reality check. To replace those should statements, say, you know, so-and-so should do such and such with, it would be nice if so-and-so could do such and such. But then... But the reality is blank. And then you fill it in with as many things as you can of you know, what that person is going through yourself or someone else. Therefore, given the circumstance, my most effective response could be blank. The thing that I love about that substitution and that I found it so helpful for myself and for others is, again, it frees us to actually do something about what we can actually do something about. 
rather than sit and ruminate well, over and over and over what, we're, what we find disappointing. Now finally, the last um, of these cognitive distortions uh, is mental filter, focusing on the negative, literally just seeing the negative, depressing, disappointing aspects of our lives. That one's easy. We hear about it from pretty much problem after problem. My favorite was Thomas S. Monson, who would constantly say, we need to develop an attitude of gratitude. And he always had that attitude of gratitude. He always had that little bit, you know? And I love that. One of the first assignments that I give to all of my clients when they first come in is a gratitude journal. To write down the things that are great about their life today without changing a thing. And it might be dumb things. It might be, this guy happens to be blue today. I happen to see a butterfly, you know, float across my vision today. My toddler said something funny today. I read something in the scriptures that kind of touched me today. Something an educational speaker said really touched me, you know. So we can write those things down, even if our lives are falling apart, even if we got a whole bunch of triggers, negative triggers. There's always going to be something positive that we can identify. The power of positive perspective, I love this. Elder Richard G. Scott gave a talk about this one time. He said, a pebble held close to the eye appears to be a gigantic obstacle. Cast it on the ground, it is seen in perspective. Now, I love this image that a photographer friend helped put together. You see this pebble hold close, you see every demarcation, every ugly little you know, thing that's wrong with it. But look what else is in that picture. Elder Scott continued, challenges are growth experiences, temporary scenes to be played out in the background of a happy life. Don't become so absorbed in a single event that you can't think of anything else or care for yourself or those who depend upon you. Again, we can learn to capture those things in a daily gratitude journal, writing down the things that are great. That's, there's no negative side effects of that exercise, none. It's one of the first exercises I get almost every client to look at the glass half full sort of thing. Now I'm going to jump over these next ones because we already covered that in class earlier. We don't have time today. So um, so here's an unanswered question about all these cognitive distortions, which is, where do they all come from? Where do these negative automatic thoughts come from? The scientists looked at the data and said, you know, people are depressed, they tend to have these kind of thoughts. Well, what they can never answer is, where do they come from? Well, what causes them? So they had some possibilities, personal history, you know, what happened to you when you're, you know, younger, whatever. Personal biology, you know, this gene or that gene. Media influence, obviously, is a huge one. I think there's another thing that we can consider, which is spiritual junk mail. Okay? We're very familiar with the concept of mail and junk mail in our world, right? And we have those physical junk mail, um, you know, we have in our mailboxes, and somebody shows up. That we know it's not our message because we wanted to just toss the garbage can. Recently, we've also learned to do the same thing with our cyber uh, mailboxes. You know, we, every day, one of my first rituals anymore is to look at my inbox and delete two, two thirds of what I see there. It's just junk. It's, it's you know, marketing or anything else is destructive. There's spiritual junk mail that comes, ideas that come to our minds and hearts. Um, destructive messages sent who messages, if heeded, will bring destruction and misery. You can't stop junk mail from being sent, but you can stop from opening it, perusing it, and bringing it into the house. That's true of your physical mailbox, that's true of your cyber mailbox, and brothers and sisters, it is true of your spiritual mailbox. Here's the thing to understand. The Spirit of the Lord 
That member of the Godhead is able to speak to our spiritual senses, our spiritual ears, put images in front of our spiritual eyes, touch our spiritual feelings. But the Spirit of the Lord is not the only spirit in the universe. And the other spirits out available in the universe come to us in the same way. Through our spiritual eyes, our spiritual ears, our spiritual feelings, we can learn to discern messages that come from a sender, you know, the Spirit of the Lord, you know, and, and other positive uh, sources, and discern that from those who are literally intent on our destruction. And what I find is, this 10 forms of twisted thinking, I always tell my LDS clients, with my Christian clients, this is literally, this, this toolbox of the 10 forms of twisted thinking is literally a demon detection system. Because I am absolutely convinced those 10 forms of twisted thinking, including the four that we covered, are literally how Satan and his angels talk to us. Those things that they whisper to try to bring us down. Now remember, Satan, having become miserable forever, seeks therefore the misery of all mankind. And if he can achieve that misery by causing us to engage in some big, deep, serious sins, okay, he's happy. But some of us are too smart for that, so he goes with plan B. Plan B is telling us misery-creating, depressing lies that get in the way of our happiness, that get in the way of our contributions in this world. We can learn to discern and then disarm the destroyer, the adversary, the father of lies. And these tools help in that process. I love this quotation from Ephesians. My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That he may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Now I want to finish up with another resource that I put together when I learned this about how powerful we can be as we learn to recognize and overcome the wiles of Satan, including these kinds of destructive ideas. This is called Armed with Strength.
learn to overcome the lies of the story that we are broken, that we are hopeless, that we can't get better, that things will never improve. We have literally learned, moment by moment, day by day, arrow by arrow, how to deflect, defend ourselves and others against those lies from the adversary, and even replace them with a pure and human Jesus, our master. And we that with the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord.